All right. Well, this morning's going to be, um, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> there's, there's pretty much two things you, you never want to do as a preacher. There's two, two things you dread, okay? One is talking about money, and the other is preaching a long sermon. Those are like the two no-no's. Well, I'm going to preach about money, and it might be a little bit of a long sermon this morning. So, you know, you, you might be a little nervous about this. I don't know. Um, anyways, I'm going, to, I'm going to try to do my best to, to make our way through this. Um, I, I want to give a thorough explanation on tithing this morning. We're talking about tithing. And so we're in the midst of a series called Just Give. I would strongly encourage you, if you've not listened to the first two weeks, they, they are the foundational point that all of the rest of this flows from. Um, next week, we're going to do another Another topic on finances, more about, about stewardship and other ways that God calls us to handle our finances biblically. And then for a week or two after that, we will talk really specifically about how we are generous stewards of our time and generous stewards of our talent, the gifts and abilities God has given us. So that's where we're heading. Um, but it, it is vital that we understand the two concepts we unpacked in the first two weeks. And so briefly, they are this. Number one. We are called to be generous givers because God is making us more and more like him. Our dad, our father in heaven is the ultimate giver and he gives lavishly and generously and he is at work changing and transforming us and he's, he's calling us to be givers. And giving is very uh, tangible and practical. It's something that we do and it's, it's a way that we can express love it's a way that we obey him. And I don't know if you guys realize this or not, Jesus holds the keys to the transformation and change that happens in our life. You know, if, if we were trying to figure out on a pie chart who's the most responsible for change happening in our life, God's like responsible for like 99.9% .9 of it. But we aren't meant to just sit idly by and let stuff happen at us or to us. God calls us to engage and participate. And the way that we participate in transformation is obedience. We listen and follow him, and, and he changes us in the midst of that. Not about being perfect, um, but it's a process that we are in. And so God is a giver. He calls us to be generous givers. And that goes way beyond our pocketbook. It is, a, it is an outlook and an approach to life. Am I viewing life through the lens of what am I getting and receiving or what's being done to me? Or do I look at life and look at people as a way to give out out of the resources of how lavishly God has loved me? He's given me love, so I give love away. He's given me my life. He's given me time. He's, he's given me finances. And so I, I learned to take those and give those away. So that was week one, being generous givers like our Father. Week two... Uh, last Sunday, we talked about stewardship, and the reality is um, we need to be reminded pretty regularly, I need to be reminded anyways, that I am not actually in charge of my life. I am not the king. He is. He's the king, and everything I have is from him. And so really and truly, my life is about stewarding what he has given me. It's about stewarding what already belongs to him. He is the king. I'm a steward. And we looked very specifically at the fact that Jesus taught us that a steward should be faithful and should have wisdom in their stewardship. We should be faithful and wise in our stewardship. And primarily, the heartbeat behind that is understanding the things that truly last. And so I steward 
I invest my time, my energy, my resources into the things which are eternal. And so people are what matter and people are what lasts. And so we give and we steward by loving and treasuring that which is eternal. So there you go. That was the five-minute version of the last couple of weeks. All right, so this morning, really simply, the sermon is called, the title of the sermon is called The Tithe, The Tithe. Um, and as, as we jump into this, I just want to communicate to you, if you're pretty new, if this is like your first Sunday or second Sunday, I just want you to know, and, and you'll have to trust me on this, this, we don't make a big deal about money here. We're not heavy-handed and trying to force or push people into giving, and, and I think you'll see that consistently over time. However, I want to be certain to communicate the fullness of the gospel on every topic, and that includes this topic. And so I'm not um, going to apologize. I'm not going to be overly apologetic about this. We should talk about what God has to say about every aspect of our lives, including our finances. Um, a couple of other disclaimers really quickly. Um, I want you to know I practice what I'm preaching this morning. My wife and I tithe. Um, I don't sit here and go, well, I'm, I'm receiving my, uh, my paycheck from the church, so why would I tithe back to it? I, I'm a dude with a job, and I want to follow biblical principles, and so I practice tithing. And so we tithe. I also want you to know I don't see your tithe. I purposely try to stay out of that. I don't see it. Um, you give. It's between you and the Lord. We're, we're teaching something we believe in, but this is between you and him. And so I don't see whether you tithe or how much you tithe or any of that. Um, also, I guess I feel like this should probably be said, um, my salary is not tied to our tithes. I'm not on commission somehow, so I'm not benefiting by convincing everybody to give. Our, our elders set our salaries. And so anyways, I just want to say all that up front. And I hope we can laugh a few times along the way this morning because we're going to need it. <laughs> hey, it hurts when you start reaching into people's pockets, man. Like it hurts. It hurts. So here we go. We're jumping into this. Um, one other thing I want to say, I said this like the first month we were in town. We were actually in our living room when I communicated this. As a church, um, as church leadership, we're not going to get hung up on how much money comes in. Our heart is to steward well what comes in. And so we want to love, serve, and minister to this body and care for the needs of this body. We want to reach out beyond that to our community and we want to support others in God's kingdom, other churches, other missionaries, other missions. And so we want to practice as church leadership the principles that we're all called to individually. And so I just I want you to know that's a part of our heart in this as well. All right. Are we ready? Yes. That was, was that enough yes. opening? Okay. I'm going to do my best to get through this quickly. There are a lot of scriptures. Some of them I will go through fast, but I purposely included them in the notes I would encourage you, do not take my word on this. The, there are not only scriptures I'm going to read this morning, there are additional ones that I reference in passing. Dig into this yourself. Talk to the Lord about this. Ask him where you and him stand on this issue and what he's calling you to. So do that always with whatever I preach. Be like a Berean. Look into it yourself. But do that this morning. Okay, so the tithe is a biblical principle and it's a relational response. It's a biblical principle, 
and it's a relational response. That's the heartbeat of where we're going. So we're going to move through five different categories. And, and basically what I want to do this morning is I want to take us through all of the different places in Scripture that address this issue of tithing and giving. And so we're going to look at five categories. We're going to look at Scriptures before the law was given, right? Before the law of Moses was given as the children of Israel were coming out of their bondage in Egypt. There are things in Scripture that talk about the tithe and the first fruits prior to the law. Then we're going to look at some of the biblical aspects of it related to the law. Okay, that would be the second point that we'll get to. Then we're going to look at times in the Old Testament when God's people had drifted or strayed. Maybe they'd gone into captivity or they'd been under some really poor leadership of a king. And they just wandered from the Lord in a lot of ways. And we're going to see that when they returned to him, one of the things they would do is they would come back to this issue of tithing in a really interesting way. And so it was a response to him. Um, and then we're going to look at some New Testament verses related to tithing and giving. And then finally, this might come as a surprise to some of you because there's this weird rumor going around that Jesus never talked about tithing. And it is completely untrue. And so we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about tithing. So there's, there's, our, there's our launching off point. All right, here we go. Number one, we're going to look at some examples pre-law. So the first example comes to us immediately after the fall. Immediately after the fall, Adam and Eve begin having children, and those children are doing what God said they would have to do, which is work and toil with the ground and with animals. And so they have their two sons, Cain and Abel. And we're going to pick up the story in the middle of verse 2 of Genesis chapter 4. And the scripture says, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And notice these words, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Right out of the chute, there are several key principles here that we see about our heart towards giving and the tithe. Um, this, this passage is really about the first fruit. I think it's interesting to note that the thing it says about Cain is that over the course of time, he brought some from his vegetables, some from his gardening. You see the mentality there? Whereas Cable did two things. He gave the firstborn and he gave of the fat portions. So the, the biblical picture is first and best, not leftover eventually. Not left over eventually. And I think it's interesting that, that God, God gave Cain an opportunity here to experience some change. I mean, unfortunately, if, if you've ever heard of Cain and Abel, you kind of know the end of this story. It doesn't go well. Sin truly was crouching at the door for Cain. But God warned him. and He said, beware, watch out. And I find it interesting that it says twice, Cain's face fell. 
what Cain should have done was fallen on his face. There is a difference between a sense of looking around at others, comparing ourselves to others, trying to justify ourselves, and even becoming discouraged along the way. God's not calling us to discouragement this morning. If you're hearing something that's brand new to you as we unpack the tithe, or it's convicting in any way as maybe something you haven't practiced, my, my heart and God's heart is not that your face would fall and you'd feel beat up and discouraged and even looking around going, I need to compare myself to other people. No, not at all. There's an invitation to say, okay, God, I'm going to respond to you on this issue. If it's something I need, I've been aware of and I need to repent of, I'm going to fall on my face and say, God, I'm sorry. I want to realign my life in this way. If it's brand new to you, I'm sorry. I just sort of made you responsible for new information this morning. <laughs> Maybe I should have warned you to plug your ears before I started talking. But, um, but God is inviting Cain to view this through a proper lens. It's not about comparing himself to Abel. It's about seeing the Lord. The bottom line is, Without any giving of law or instruction, somehow they both kind of knew they needed to honor and acknowledge God. And Abel knew, I'm going to give my first and best. See, I, I actually believe if we're just honest with ourselves about the reality of a creator who made us, that if we put him in proper perspective to our lives, we're going to realize I, sh I should honor him. He's given me everything that I have. And it's, it's an automatic response to that. And so Abel gives first and best. And that begins to set the, the tone for this issue of first fruit that we'll see as we go. Um, the second place where we see uh, this pop up in Scripture is where the Bible starts to get very specific with the word tithe or tenth. And so we see this through the character of Abraham, who's currently Abram at this point in the story. He hasn't had the name change that God gave him. And in Genesis chapter 14, Abram is fresh off of a victory. His family and his neighbors, his friends have been captured. And he goes and fights the enemy, sets them free. They've, they've had this victory and there's now spoils. He's got all new possessions as they have rescued their friends from the captivity that they were in. And as he is returning home victorious, he meets this mysterious character in Genesis 14, verse 18. And we, we meet this guy right here, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, really quickly, um, this could be Jesus. This could be an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. There's a few places where it's believed that Jesus, our eternal Savior, showed up and made appearances in the Old Testament, at the very least, if it's not him, it's a picture or representation of him. I would encourage you to take a look at Hebrews chapter 7 to see the connection. The writer of the book of Hebrews makes that connection, that Jesus, that Melchizedek is a type of Jesus. He is a priest before God Most High. And notice the picture. What does he bring? Bread and wine. I mean, this is thousands of years before the cross. This is long before the Last Supper. And we already have the imagery of one bringing bread and wine. And so Melchizedek comes. He brings bread and wine. And he blesses Abram and says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. 
So he prays a blessing, speaks a blessing over Abram. And what is Abram's response? He gave him a tenth of everything. The word tithe means tenth. Or for us, we would say 10%. That's actually what the word inherently means. A tenth portion, 10%. And so Abraham takes what he's just received and responds in worship by giving a tenth to this priest of God Most High. So there's a couple of pictures prior to the law even uh, coming into existence. Another one that you could check out is in Genesis chapter 28. Um, Jacob enters the story, right? We've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his grandson, where God begins to confirm a relationship and a covenant with Jacob. It's the famous story of the dream he has at, at what's called Jacob's Ladder, and then God renews a covenant with him. He calls that place Bethel, and he gives a tenth, a tithe there. And so we see this principle kind of unfolding. Let's move into point two now. So now we come to the law. Um, you could check out Exodus 13, Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 12, 14, 26. I hope I didn't go too fast for you note takers. Um, you could check out all of those places. We're going to look at two. The first one we're going to look at is Deuteronomy 26. And this is in the midst of a, a talk, a blessing, a prayer that Moses is communicating to God's people right before Moses dies and they move into the promised land. So Moses is kind of wrapping up his leadership of God's people. And he wants to communicate some key things to them. Um, he begins this passage by reminding them all that the Lord has done for them. He set you free. He's brought you into a new land. And he says, this now is your response. Deuteronomy 26.10. And behold, now I bring the first fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. Notice he's making a connection between the financial offering that's being given and worship. And it's in response to what God has done. Verse 11. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, to you and the Levite and the sojourner among you. Verse 12. And when if you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, so they would kind of gather for years and then bring it at one kind of large moment, um, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner or foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. So you see the picture God's giving? It's an act of worship and it's practical. It meets the needs of the priests who are serving you guys. It meets the needs of the foreigners in your midst. So we're reaching out beyond ourselves to bless other people. And we're taking care of the needy in our midst, widows and orphans. That is the purpose and heart behind the tithe. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, verse 13, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house. And moreover, I've given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. Now, now pay attention to verse 14 here. This has is, this is challenged me, and I'll be honest with you, I've, I've blown it in this area in my life. Verse 14. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, 
or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God, and I have done according to all that you've commanded me. What he's saying is, when times are tough, when times are hard, I don't neglect tithing. When life gets real, when I could really use that somewhere else, I don't neglect tithing. Even in the midst of difficulty, I'm going to do this faithfully. Verse 15. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. This day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statues and rules. And, and notice the heartbeat of this from Moses, who's communicating them on behalf of the Lord. Um, you, therefore, be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. It's a heart issue. This is not about technically doing the right thing, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's. At, at the end of the day, this is a heart issue. Remembering who God is, what he's done for us. It's an act of worship. It practically meets needs. And I, I do it faithfully and consistently. That tithe, that 10%, the first fruit of the ground, it's going to him. Verse 17, you have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. A couple of observations. We, we kind of highlighted them as we went, but I just want to make sure this stands out. Number one, it's given in worship. The tithe is given in worship. And it, it's given from a place at, coming from our heart. It's connected to love. I love, I'm responding to him, and I give. Secondly, and it could be easy to miss this, but in verse 11, he says, you shall rejoice. It's given with joy. My tithe has not always been given with joy. I've, at times in my life, I've given kind of painfully and begrudgingly, but the truth is God's, God's inviting us to, to worship and to give from a place of joy. How am I able to do that? I mean, just practically for a minute, how, how are we able to give from a place of joy? I believe it's vitally important to approach this relationally. To know my God, to understand who he is, to understand what he has done for me. Moses began this whole thing by highlighting their past, the freedom God has brought them, and the new place he's taking them into, which, by the way, they have not entered yet. So they're celebrating God's past faithfulness, and they're trusting and believing in his future goodness, even though there's still a battle ahead of them. But they're able to give with joy because they're remembering who God is, what he has done, and they're trusting and believing for what he will continue to do in their lives. And so it meets practical needs. They give no matter the current situation. Um, one more example in this kind of section of the law. Um, we see something. Uh, I, I want to kind of move from Moses to David. You know, here's a couple of guys who just faithfully knew God, walked with him, loved him. I, I'm interested in what they have to say about this because it came from a real place. You know, there's plenty of evidence in the Old Testament of people who were hypocritical or outwardly looking one way and inwardly doing something else. But Abraham, Moses, David, these were real guys who were imperfect and made mistakes, but it was always said of them, they loved God. They were people after God's heart. They were friends with God. And so we're going to take a look now at David at the end of his life. 
And he's in the midst of giving a blessing to God's people. He's praying to the Lord. They're dedicating money that has been brought that's going to be for the building of the temple because he's getting ready to anoint Solomon to become king. And Solomon is going to build God's house. And so in the midst of that passage, we're going to pick up in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, beginning in verse 10. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. It's his. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. You see the, you see the basis for this? You see the foundation for it? Verse 13, And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? David is considering it an honor that he gets to give and offer to the Lord, that he gets to participate in building up God's house and in his kingdom. He's so in awe of who God is and how incredible he is and all that he's done. He's, he's moved by the fact that he's allowed to participate with the Lord. Listen, God doesn't tell us to give because he needs our money. David makes that clear. He has it all. Everything is his. It all belongs to him. David recognized something important. This is beneficial for us. It is actually good for us to be able to willingly offer and participate in worshiping God with our resources. It's good for us to be reminded that he's king and I'm not. And so David says, isn't this amazing, Lord, that we get to do this? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. You see what he says? I'm giving you back what's already yours. If you hear nothing, out, nothing else throughout really this whole series, if we could just grab hold of the mindset that the things I hold are his, not mine, that would radically change our outlook on life. On all levels, way beyond finances. If, if I could learn to live like this, God, what you've placed here, thank you for it. And I'm grateful for it. And God, I want to be generous with it. I want to have a heart of gratitude. I want to steward it faithfully and wisely. But God, it's yours. Thank you. And if, if there's very little in there right now, all right. If there's a lot, great. God, it's yours, not mine. It's yours, not mine. Continuing on. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. See, the very, the very place the resources go, David's saying, we're that. We're that. That person that I'm, I'm blessing and I'm ministering to by participating in this, that's been me. I was the person without a home. I was the person that's been brought near. We are sojourners. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O oh Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. 
and it is in the uprightness of my heart that I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering how? Freely and freely and joyously to you. Man, how rewarding must that have been? I mean, this isn't a reflection on David's whole life this morning, but that bro's seen some things. He's been through a lot, a lot of wars, a lot of struggles, a lot of difficulty. He's been rejected. He survived a coup. His own son was trying to dethrone him and kill other, others of his kids in order to secure that. He's, he's gone through a lot. And here on his, his last knees, his last breath, he looks at all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly. And he has a glimpse of God's goodness. He's thankful that he's been able to walk his whole life with the Lord. And he gets this moment to look out at the people he's loved and shepherded and been a king over and said, God, this is awesome. Look at them freely and joyously giving to you. And he celebrates. And then verse 18 just says, God, I hope this continues. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Again, David and Moses both connecting this to the heart. God's the ultimate provider, and we're invited to worship joyfully and freely because of that. All right, one more thing I want to introduce to you guys here, and then, and then we'll move into our third point. Um, so there's the concept of the first fruit, giving our best, giving our first. There's the concept of the tithe, which is 10% of what we have. And in the midst of that, there's this mysterious thing that happens in Exodus 13. And this is right in the midst of the Passover, which is the, the night that Israel is going to get released from their captivity in Egypt. It's at the end of the 10 plagues. The firstborn across the whole land is going to be killed, except for those who follow the specific procedures that were given. And that in and of itself is a whole other cool imagery of Jesus being our ultimate Passover lamb. But in the midst of this, God establishes this concept of first fruits as it relates to anything that's born, animals and people. This is going to be important a little bit later. Exodus 13, verse 2. God says, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Skipping down to verse 12. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks, what does this mean? Why are we doing this? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Here's the picture. Of all clean animals, of all clean animals, the firstborn animal, the firstborn male animal was given as a sacrifice to the Lord. Any other firstborn male animals that were unclean and also any human children, the firstborn son, they were to be redeemed. How were they redeemed? A clean animal was sacrificed in place of the unclean animal so they could be redeemed. 
so they could be kept, so they could be left whole. The clean sacrificed for the unclean. It's a picture of first fruits. Y'all with me? Okay. So with that backdrop, I'm, I'm just going to mention these next two in passing just to conserve some time, Jacob. So um, two passages I would encourage you to read. Um, Old Testament times of reform. When Hezekiah becomes king in 2 Chronicles chapter 31, he's in the midst of, of bringing Israel back into worshiping the one true God. They've gotten off into worshiping idols. They haven't been faithfully walking with the Lord. And in the midst of this, he brings out the book of the law and says, we're going to worship God the right way. We're going to tear down idols. We're going to break down all those old strongholds. And we're going to worship the one true God the way he told us to. And in the midst of this, they reinstitute tithing. They see it in the law and they go, we need to be doing this. This was actually happening during an economic downturn. Things are, are ugly. They're not going well. And so in the midst of that, they, they all decide as one people, we're turning our hearts back to God. They begin to honor him specifically in this way of tithing. And they get, they get these huge, the scripture really says heaps. There's these huge piles that have been gathered. They've been coming in for months. And Hezekiah begins to walk around with a priest and he goes, he actually, the scripture says he's concerned. He goes, I'm worried the people are giving too much. Like, are they okay? Are their needs met? What's going on? And the priest said, no, no. Here's what's happened. As they have begun to give and tithe as they were supposed to, there's now an abundance. They've got more than enough. Everyone's doing well. We've, we've returned and honored God in all aspects of our life. And abundance is being produced in the midst of that. We see a similar thing happen in Nehemiah chapter 12 when God's people are returning back to the land after being in captivity. And Nehemiah and Ezra are beginning to follow the book of the law again and to worship God. And, and one of the things they do is they reinstitute um, first fruits and tithing. And this is in Nehemiah 12 verses 44 through 46. And they directly connect songs and worship and celebration Praise and thanksgiving connected with them tithing again. They're just, they're celebrating that they have a, a home again, a land again, and that everything is being rebuilt and put back together and they can worship God. And tithing is connected with that. All right, so there's some pictures there. Um, I want to bridge the gap from Old Testament thinking and teaching on tithing into the New Testament. And we're going to do this by looking at the last book in the Old Testament. The last book in the Old Testament. This is Malachi chapter 3. And in Malachi chapter 3, um, we're going to pick up in verse 6. The first five verses are actually a reference to Jesus who is coming and what he's going to do when he comes. And so then immediately after that description in verses 1 through 5, I think it's interesting here something God says right from the start. Verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change. One of the big issues that, that a lot of Christians struggle with is this idea of the tithe is an Old Testament law-based thing. But it happened before the law was established. They followed it during the law. And God says right here in a passage where he's about to call them out for not tithing, he says, I don't change. I don't change. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. For the days of your fathers, 
You have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. He's like, man, you guys blow it. I'm thankful that I see plenty of examples of God's people blowing it because I blow it. And I love what the Lord is saying, even as he's correcting them and saying, I don't change. He says, I haven't consumed you. I haven't destroyed you. But I'm, but I'm calling you to change and to repent. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Really simply, God says, I don't change. You've been robbing me of the tithe because it's mine. It's mine. It belongs to me. See, here's, here's the picture. I love this. I'm, I'm stealing this from Robert Morris. Alex, can I use you as an example for a minute? Would you come stand up here? This is the picture, all right? And you're going to have to, this is a stretch, but let's pretend I'm God for a minute. It's a huge stretch, okay? But I come to Alex and say, Alex, I've got a job for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you a certain amount of money every year, and here's your job. Your job is to take care of my wife. And so I'm going to give you this money, and the way you're going to take care of her is you're going to give her 10% of it, and then you keep the other 90 of what I give you. Like imagine if I hired Alex to just take care of my wife for me while I was gone and said, here's a bunch of money, give her 10% of it, you live off the rest. Who does all that money belong to? And I'm saying, I'm giving you 100% of it, and I'm asking you to do something specific with 10% of it. I'm asking you to take care of my wife, who I love, and I'm putting her in your charge to take care of her, and you enjoy the other 90%. You see the picture? That's the picture. Thanks, bud. You can sit. That's the, God's saying it's, it's, it belongs to me, and it's for my bride. It's for the one I love. It's to meet her needs and care for her. And God says, listen. He says, test me on this. Test me on this. I know this might be hard. I know this might stretch you. But I'm telling you, if you will, if you will follow this principle I'm laying before you, I'm going to bless you. It's going to change your life. It's going to change your life. I'm going to rebuke the devourer. I'm going to pour a blessing on you. And I believe that he is talking about something far greater than just financial. Something happens to us when we choose to live a life of generosity and gratitude. It changes our whole perspective and outlook. It changes our behaviors. It changes how we treat people. I'm going to have a blessed family life when I live as a generous giver who's grateful for what I have. I'm able to roll with the punches of what's difficult when it comes because I'm living with a sense of gratitude because all I have comes from him. Does this make sense? All right, I don't want to belabor the point. He's good, he's faithful, and he's generous. Okay, a couple more things. Moving into the New Testament now. 
What, what does the scripture say in the New Testament about tithing? On some levels, I think it's accurate to say that the New Testament doesn't spend a lot of time emphasizing the specific point of the tithe. It talks a lot about giving and about generosity. In fact, I find it interesting because in so many ways, everything is fuller and richer and bigger in New Testament living. Um, Grace is bigger. God's love is bigger. Freedom is bigger. Also, what God's inviting me to, he's inviting me to give all of myself to him. And so I enjoy something far above all I could ask or imagine. And I'm also called to live life in a such a way that might require more out of me than I would originally think. One of the classic examples of this, you know, one of the favorite passages that we have in the New Testament, and, and we talk about this passage a lot when we're celebrating community life. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Early church, Acts chapter 2, right? Don't we celebrate this passage where just, man, they're living together and they're eating together. It just, it's awesome. Like, it's awesome. I wish we could just come back to the simplicity and the purity of that. Cool. Let's read those verses together and see what this looked like in reality. You ready? This is New Testament life and giving and generosity. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And to give a little more clarity, here's how they did that. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, they attended the temple together and were breaking bread in their homes and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. New Testament generosity doesn't lower the bar. It raises it. Guys, they had church every day. They had church every day. They were getting together every single day, learning, studying, praying, worshiping. I don't say that to heap some kind of like burden or condemnation on us. I'm just saying they were so overcome with the love and grace and generosity of God. They were so appreciating, enjoying the relationships God had invited them into. It just permeated every aspect of their life. They weren't trying to figure out what's the bare minimum I'm supposed to give. They're just looking at each other and going, what do we need to do to take care of one another, to meet the needs, to bless each other? There was an atmosphere and a spirit of generosity and of joy for all that God had done. I love that picture. Um, in Philippians, Paul commends the Philippians as being one of the only churches in a whole area who were regularly giving and supporting him and his work. And he commends them saying, you're supporting me so I'm able to go into other places and preach the word. It's in Philippians 4, 15 and 16. Then in 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9, we'll read this one really quick, Jacob. Paul points back to that and he says, as he's talking to them, he says, listen, he's, at, he's saying this in a question form. He says, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. That's the Philippians. In the Philippians passage, he says, you're the only ones from Macedonia supporting the work. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. 
Paul, Paul's exhorting the Corinthians. We see it in chapter 8 especially. He's exhorting them to be generous givers. And he's saying, I'm not saying this for my benefit. He's like, God's taking care of my needs. This isn't about me getting something from you. I'm coming free of charge. What I'm saying is, this is beneficial for you to be like your brothers and sisters and give. And give generously. So there's some New Testament pictures of giving. Last thing. Are y'all doing all right? I I know this is long. I said it was long. I'm, I'm wrapping up, I promise. Last thing. Jesus talked about tithing. He talked about tithing. He actually did it twice. You know, often we see in the Gospels, um, we see the same kind of passage or story show up. The wording is similar. These are two different stories. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is having dinner by invite with a Pharisee. And there's other Pharisees and lawyers and people present. And in the midst of that, he's kind of calling something out. And he says in Luke eleven forty two, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe the mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Did you catch that? He's not saying you should stop tithing. He's saying don't stop tithing, but don't just do this by the letter of the law. I mean, I love that about Jesus. He's always after the heart. Don't do it just by the letter of the law. Yes, continue to tithe, but live justly. Love people well. Live from the heart. That's the challenge he gives. Now, this is in the relative beginning stages, maybe middle stages of his ministry. If we now fast forward, he is in Jerusalem the week of his death. This is after the triumphal entry, before Gethsemane and the cross. And he's in Jerusalem. And in Matthew 23, 23, again, he's calling out the Pharisees. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. He's saying you tithe even the tiniest little thing. You're following the letter of the law, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. And again, what does he say? These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. I asked this earlier. I said, does God need our money? The answer is no, right? Does God want our money? Yes. Why? He's after your heart. And he knows that there is a connection between this pocketbook back here and there's a string that connects it to my heart right here. He says, if I can get your money, I can get your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's actually a way to figure out where this is, is how we respond with our money. He loves us enough that he's after the heart. I... I, I mentioned along the way this concept, and maybe your brain already made all the connections, of the way that the unclean was redeemed. But I just have to say something to you. This is real and relational and personal to the Lord. He loves us. And I I don't, what I'm about to say, this is not meant to be some guilt thing. It's actually meant to connect the reality of who God is and his love for us with the way that we worship and live. And the reality is this. Think about this. Jesus, the clean, was sacrificed for you and I, the unclean, so we could be redeemed. Jesus is God the Father's best. 
He's the first fruit. He's the firstborn son. He's the only begotten son of the father. He was the first and best and only. If I could be maybe a little risky here to say this, Jesus is God the father's tithe. He gave his first fruit for you and I to redeem us. We started this whole series by saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The New Testament calls Jesus the first fruit. And the beauty is he's not just the first fruit because he sacrificed and died for us. He's now the first fruit of eternal life. His life points to our eternal life. And so when we tithe, the context of our tithing, it should be relational. It should be an act of worship. It's a loving, joyful response of worship, freely given. I hope you don't hear this morning obligation. I hope you hear God's heart. He's designed us to function a certain way. And he loves us and and he is calling us to love and worship and adore him. He's calling us to see and receive Jesus, our first fruit. And we get to respond back. When I tithe, it's a reminder of the tithe. It's an act of worship. Don't do it because you have to or you're supposed to. Let's do it as a form of worship. Let's do it as a form of worship. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are the clean who died to redeem me, the unclean. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood that covers, that cleanses Thank you for newness of life. Jesus, I pray that my heart more and more would be like David's heart. God, where I, I know that I'm, I'm blown away that I even get to have a relationship with you, that I get to participate in what you're doing, that I get to give towards kingdom work that meets needs, that blesses people. I get to love your bride by honoring you with my tithe. God, I just pray really simply and practically. You'd you'd meet us all where we are, God, that we wouldn't hear heavy-handed condemnation or obligation or legalism, but, God, that, that we would hear a loving, good Father who has blessed us immensely and that we would recognize that you're inviting us into a way of life that will be so good for us as, as joyful worshipers who live with gratitude and, therefore, we are able to give generously and to steward faithfully and wisely because you're teaching us how to do that. And so, God, we love you. We honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.